I want to welcome everybody to the Last Grace Community Church meeting at this building. Uh, the Lord has provided us a place to gather and meet together for over a year. And God has built His church in, in this room. God has been faithful to feed us with bread from heaven in this room, the bread of life. And He has drawn near to us as we gather together in His name. He has encouraged us. He's convicted us. He's grown us in Christ. He's grown the number of this church. He's grown this church in holiness. And so we praise God for what He's done in this season of Grace Community Church. And our prayer is that God would open up a door and provide for us another place to gather. And we trust Him. We trust that He's faithful to do that. You have shown up this morning and we are walking through the book of 1 John together on Sunday mornings as a local church. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to 1 John chapter 2. 1 John chapter 2. And I want to say this before we pray. I want to remind everybody that we are committed as we walk through these passages of Scripture. We are committed to preach what God puts in front of us. In other words, me and Ryan, when we're studying these passages of Scripture, we, we don't ask the question, what do I want to say? What do, what do I want to talk about this Sunday? We ask the question, what does God say here? And we try to be faithful to God to take His words and, and give them to the church week in and week out. So I say that to say this. Today, in the middle of a really strong letter, we have, we have spent several weeks of, of, of warnings over and over about false conversion. And so in the middle of this really strong letter of 1 John, things pause for just a moment. And, and I just want to tell you today, today my main goal, 100% start to finish, is I want every Christian to walk out of this room happy and rejoicing in Jesus and satisfied in the gospel. I want to magnify the work of Christ in your life. And you're going to see that's exactly what this passage is, is slipped in the middle of this letter to do. And so this morning, this is the only thing I'm going to say to you. If you're here this morning, you are outside of Jesus. Start to finish, we're about to unpack the blessings of the gospel and what we have received in Christ, every believer in the room. And I just want to remind you on the front end, if you are outside of Christ, you have none of these. You have none of these. And I want to remind you today that this gospel that we celebrate, this is not things that you've heard about your whole life. This is real. Our God has radically transformed our life. We possess these things. We are the people of God. Our sins have been forgiven. God has transformed us and He has saved us. And I want that to be a reminder to you as you see a group of people rejoicing in Christ, magnifying His work in their life, that this is real that this gospel is real. And you can receive this at any moment on planet earth through faith alone. That is the only thing that's stopping you from these gifts of grace that we're going to unpack today. And that's the only thing that I'll remind you of on the front end. Let's pray together this morning and then we'll read our text. Father, we are your people, Lord. You created us for your glory. We rebelled against You from the moment that we were born. But God, You redeemed us by Your blood. We are Yours twice over by creation and redemption. We are Your people, the sheep of Your pasture, Lord. And we gather together in Your name today. And our prayer, God, is that You would draw near to us, Lord. We desire to meet with You, our great God. We desire to, to have You magnify Your work of grace in our life. And so we pray this morning, come Holy Spirit. 
Come magnify Christ in our midst. Come exalt the gospel. And every believer in this room, Lord, satisfy us with your steadfast love so that we can rejoice and be glad all of our days, Lord. Remind us of how powerful your gospel is in our life, Lord. Remind us that our names are carved in heaven. God, remind us today of your new covenant. Lord, come bear witness to your word. Come stand beside me as I preach your word. Lord, come help me with the strength that comes from heaven and help this church. Lord, help us as your people. Give us ears to hear in the next hour. God, carve out a moment, Lord, where we can worship you for what you've done in our life. And we pray this in Jesus name. Amen. Amen. First John chapter two. We're going to read our passage together. And if you have your Bibles, I want you to turn there and fix your eyes on these words. We say this often. I'll say it again. This is the most important thing you're going to hear in the next hour. These are words from God without error. Hot breath from the mouth of the Holy One. God's living, breathing word. And we get to read it. We get to gather together and read it this morning. 1 John chapter 2, verse 12, and we will read through verse 14. This is the Word of God. I am writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for His namesake. I am writing to you, fathers, because you know Him who is from the beginning. I am writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, children, because you know the Father. I write to you fathers because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you young men because you are strong and the word of God abides in you and you have overcome the evil one. So this is where we're headed start to finish today is I want to remind every believer in the room of what Christ has done in your life. That's where we're headed I want you to real quick, I'll call attention to the structure of the passage. I want you to understand what's going on here. We have six isolated statements that start with some form of the phrase, I write to you, I write to you, I write to you. Six of those. Those statements are directed to three separate groups of people, children, young men, and fathers. And then he gives specific gospel truths to each of those three groups, to the children, the young man and the fathers. And then guess what? He repeats himself. He does it again. Okay? And the question is, what in the world is going on here? How does this fit in with everything that we've been studying through so far in the, in the book of 1 John? And so we're going to back up for a moment. And we're going to get oriented. And, and we're going to remind ourselves of what's happening in this letter. So I'm going to remind you on the front end of why is the pen in his hand? Why... Are words being carved on this page that are being inspired by the Holy Spirit even as He writes them out? And He tells us. He tells us what He's doing. He is writing this letter to give believers assurance. 1 John 5, 13. This is the banner that hangs over the whole letter. He says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. 
That's nothing new if you've been studying along the past, uh, the past few weeks. He wants believers to know that they have eternal life. And I'll remind you of this. That doesn't mean He wants believers to know that they're going to go to heaven when they die. Certainly it means that, but that's not all it means. He wants every believer in Jesus to know that they presently possess the life of God pulsing through their soul. That it is real. You have life eternal in you now in Christ. And He wants us to wake up to these things. To wake up to them. Not just facts on a page, but living reality that we presently possess. Eternal life. That's why He's given us this letter. Now, in order for that to be cemented in the mind of these Christians, what He begins to do is He begins to draw a distinction all throughout this letter between the faith of genuine Christians... And the faith of these false converts that he's confronting, these heretics that we've talked so much about already in this letter. So this is why in 1 John you get a heavy dose of self-examination, right? And in fact, a guy a hundred years ago wrote a commentary on this book. And you know what he titled it? title of his commentary was Test of Life. And that's a good, that is a good summary of this, what this book is doing. Is it, it is giving us criteria and tests to evaluate, do I really have the life of God in my soul? The faith that I profess to have, is it genuine? And so he lays out these tests in this book. Test of life. And the way you're going to see him do this over and over again, is he's going to compare what we say Versus how we live. You see that? So the way he says it. Is he's comparing our profession. To the reality of our lives. And the formula that he uses is this. If we say. A. And if we live. B. He says it over and over again. We are liars. We are liars. So I want to remind you of, of, of these tests. First John chapter 1. Verse 6, listen close. If we say we have fellowship with Him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. 1 John chapter 2, verse 4. Whoever says, I know Him, but does not keep His commandments is a liar, is a liar, and the truth is not in Him. 1 John chapter 2, verse 9. Whoever says He is in the light and hates his brother, is still in darkness. And so what he, what's he doing with those tests? He's smoking out false converts. People who say they believe in Jesus, but their life tells a completely different story. Their life is B, and they're saying A. These are false converts, and he's smoking them out with these tests. So this is drawing that vivid dis distinction. And Ron talked about this last week, between true and false conversion. I'll remind you of this. There is not a Christian on planet earth that is exempt from these tests, from examining yourself with this criteria that we have been given in God's word. I'll prove it to you. This is a commandment in scripture for every human being on planet earth. Second Corinthians chapter 13, verse five. Listen, examine yourself. Examine yourself. To see whether you are in the faith. And then it says test yourselves. Or do you not realize this about yourselves. That Christ Jesus is in you. And then he says unless indeed you fail the test. 
And so we are commanded by God to examine ourselves, to look within. And what are we looking for? We're not looking for, am I good enough? Have I earned eternal life? That's not what we're looking for. We're looking for two things. We're looking for, is the faith that I profess to have, is it genuine? Am I in the faith? Okay, And another way to say that exact same question is, does Jesus live in me? That's what we're looking for. We're looking for evidences of faith, evidences of the new birth. And how do we do this? How do we examine ourselves? And John gives us the criteria. He's given us the test of life, these very specific practical tests that take it into every corner of our life. This is how we examine ourselves in Christ. And so that's been the thrust of the past few weeks of are you really a Christian? Are you really a Christian? And I would encourage you, if you haven't heard these, that you would go back and listen to the past couple weeks of sermons to hammer that down. That's the thrust of this letter. And we're not even done looking at that theme as we come back, to, as we progress through First uh, John. You're going to see that come up over and over again. He's not done with it, and, and, and we're not either. That's going to be revisited. But here's what here's what I want to touch on today, okay? Because we're switching directions in the middle of these three verses. And I want to show you why. Why 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 is this type thing happening in verses 12 through 14? And if you were to be really honest, any any Christian who has sincerely put their life beside these tests that John has laid out, Every single person that does that in sincerity walks away from that examination convicted of sin. You understand that? If you do that in sincerity, you don't walk back flipping out of that. I'm fine. Praise God, I'm fine. You understand that? Why? Because nobody's without sin. So anybody who leans in and gets serious about evaluating their life, or what Ryan talked about last week, that look, with, that look in, that gaze within, does Christ live in me? Is my faith genuine? Anybody that does that is going to experience the conviction of sin in their life. And it is right and good to fall under the conviction of the Holy Spirit. And it is right and good to be sober-minded about these tests. Because what happens if you fall on the wrong side of these tests? You will be punished with the wrath of God throughout eternity. There's nothing more serious than this. And so conviction and sober-mindedness, this is how we should all feel as we lean in and examine our lives. But here's the reality. Here's the reality is that so easily and very quickly you can slide from the conviction of the Holy Spirit to condemnation. And that is exactly what these verses are slipped in here to do, is to comfort the believer in the middle of this examination. Okay, So most of you are aware of this. A man of God just throws down with the Word of God and brings a powerful message from the Word. You've heard it on the internet, or you heard it sometime in your life, and he is just thundering the Word of God, lashing the Word of God, rightly so, powerful, preaching it with power and authority, not telling you jokes. And maybe, and, and you heard something like that, and you've fallen under the conviction of the Holy Spirit. And this might have happened to you, or at least you know another Christian that this has happened to, that it went past conviction of the Holy Spirit. 
And that brother, that sister, that strong, powerful word from God landed on that tender conscience of that believer. And they begin to drop the head and they say, I'm not saved. Am I really saved? Do I have eternal life? That can happen to a Christian. A Christian can possess eternal life and be ignorant of it and completely deceived that, that am I saved? Am I saved? Am I saved? And they fall under condemnation in the middle of these hard warnings from Scripture. Again, this is common. This is common. If it hasn't happened to you, you definitely know somebody that this has happened to. And this is exactly what John is coming against in these three verses. He wants to comfort somebody like that. He wants to comfort somebody like that. He's not writing us to undermine Christian assurance. You ever thought about that? That a letter that God gave us to comfort Christians way too often is used to discomfort Christians. It does the exact opposite. You see that? And so there's supposed to be this holy balance of examining ourselves, but comforted with the gospel, the finished work of Christ. This is why he gave us this letter. And this is why he's pausing. And in the middle of these strong warnings, test yourself, examine yourself. You get nothing, but God did something in your life. I know he did it. You have received the finished work of Christ. This is what he's doing. He believes he is confident that this group of people is saved. He knows it. Look at uh, 1 John chapter 2, verse 21. He says, I write to you not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it. But because you know it. This church knows the gospel, the true gospel. This, these churches have believed the true gospel and they have received the genuine work of God in their souls. And you're going to see him lay it out in these three verses. And so I want you to hear that today. He leans in to these troubled Christians, someone who would be tempted to be downcast, and he begins to rub gospel assurance in those tender consciences. And that's what we want to do today. That's what we want to do. We want to magnify what God has done in our life. We are recipients of the finished work of Jesus Christ. And I say that to Grace Community Church. There is no way, there is no way on planet earth that we can claim to be perfect in our discernment of who's in Christ and who's out of Christ. But for the vast majority, the radical majority of the members in this church, I would bet my life that you are in Christ, that you are saved from eternal wrath, that you have received the grace of God, that it's real in your life. And that's what I want to encourage you with today. This happened to you. This happened to you. You received the real thing. Received the real thing. We want to walk out of here rejoicing today. So he's reminding these believers that they have received the true gospel. They have received the finished work of Christ. Another way to say that is he's reminding them of their spiritual standing, their spiritual identity of who they are in Christ. And I want to do the exact same thing to you today. I want to remind you of who you are in Jesus. They were liable to forget it and so are you. I want to remind us of who we are in Christ. And as he does this, two things happen. We talked about the first one already. As he lays out the finished work of Christ to this church, he comforts those who are under condemnation. We talked about that already. But there's something else that also happens as we wake up to who we are in Jesus. And you think about this. What, the version of the Christian life that John has been laying out in this letter is hardcore, right? 
It is hardcore. He talks about habitually walking in the light. Habitually keeping the commandments of God. I'll read you this verse. 1 John chapter 2, verse 6. You think about this. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same manner in which he walked. Like Jesus. That we're supposed to be living like Jesus Christ, the righteous one, the holy one, the one that never sinned. We're supposed to walk in the same manner that Jesus walked. And so you imagine, as you, as you have these exalted views of Jesus Christ, you imagine hearing that. Like, the first gut instinct is, there is no way that I can do that. It is impossible to me. And so what he's doing as he's reminding these Christians of what happened to them in Christ is he's encouraging the ones that see the Christian life as impossible or unattainable. And so these commandments that are laid out in this letter, they're for every Christian. It is for every Christian, every follower of Christ, to walk in the light, to keep the commandments of God, to love the church. And it is possible, why? Because of something that has already happened to you. Because of something that has already happened to you. And I want, I want to just spend a minute talking about that. How necessary... Is it for you as a Christian to know that something happened to me? I stand in the middle of a finished work. So let's talk about this for just a second. The Christian life is impossible unless you know that Christ lives in you. You catch that? He's the only one that can live the Christian life. And the only chance you have of living it is if He is in you. If He's in you. Living it through you. So He's reminding them of this finished work. Or another way to say that is working for Christ, doing things for the Lord. It's impossible unless you know that the Lord worked for you, that He did something for you first. You go to the commandments of God, standing in the finished work of Jesus. And this is the whole point of the book of Ephesians, right? Six chapters. Split it right in half. And for three chapters, start to finish, He begins to unload on the people of God, on the church, For the first three chapters of that letter, if you want to just break it down into two words. First three chapters, done. Last three chapters, do. That's how it always works. Why in the world would you ever spend three chapters reminding a Christian, you have this in Jesus, you have this in Jesus, this is yours in Christ. Oh, look at this spiritual, these spiritual riches. Look at what He poured out on you and magnified in your life in the Gospel. And He did this for you and He did this for you and you have the Holy Spirit and you have adoption. And then now, therefore, in light of all that, that spiritual riches that you have in Christ. Therefore, walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Do you see how essential it is for for you to know that? You have no chance of obeying Jesus and walking in the manner that Jesus walked unless this is cemented in your soul that you have received the grace of God, that you have received the finished work of Christ. And so this is exactly what He's doing to them. And this is exactly what I intend to do for us today. I want to magnify the gospel in your life. And my prayer is that you would be freshly reminded of its power and of its riches and of its glory. Because you know what? Way too often all, you, all we are tempted to fall back on is it's true. 
It's true. And you know facts about Jesus. And you know what happened to you when you believed the gospel. But what you're so liable to forget and what I'm so liable to forget is the glory of it, the beauty of it, the splendor of it, the majesty of what Christ has done in our life. And that's what we want to be reminded of today. It's not just true. It's glorious. There is nothing else in all the universe that even begins to rival what Christ has done for us. What Christ has done for us. And so here's the warning. Here's the warning. It grieves my heart to think about any believer in this room being like the the prince that's mentioned in Ecclesiastes 10.7. Please turn there. I'm going to read this verse twice. He makes an observation of life and he says this, I have seen slaves on horses and princes walking on the ground like slaves. Get the picture in your mind. I have seen slaves on horses and princes walking on the ground like slaves. And I want you to see the two things that we've talked about so far in 1 John. What would a slave on horseback riding like a prince looked like. It would be somebody that strutting through life. I have eternal life. I have eternal life. And you have none. And you have none. False conversion. You're deceived. You think you have unsearchable riches in Jesus. But you have nothing. But you have nothing. But what would this look like? What would it look like to see a prince walking on the ground like a slave? Do you know that that can happen to you? That you can have the unsearchable riches of Jesus Christ lavished on you. And you can walk around in this world completely ignorant to it. It would be like somebody with $10,000 in their back pocket that walked in this morning downcast. And you said, brother, what's wrong? He said, man, I can't, you know, I can't pay my pay my mortgage this month. And and you look around, you see that fat stack sitting in their back pocket. And you're saying, (laughs) Man, I'm not understanding something here. Like, what's going on here? They have something in their possession that it's not firing right. It's like a prince walking on the ground like a slave. Do you see that? And so what we want to do is we want to see the beauty and the glory of the riches that we have in Christ. We are rich in Jesus. We're rich in Jesus. 2 Peter chapter 1 talks about a man who's become so forgetful, spiritually forgetful, that he has forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. God forbid that happen in your life. The work that Jesus has done in us, it deserves to be magnified for millions of ages into eternity. God forbid that we forget the glory of His gospel. So here's the encouragement. Wake up today to the finished work of Jesus Christ. Wake up to it. Wake up to it. We're going we're gonna to cover our passage this morning under three headings. And the first one is this. It's a call to wake up to spiritual growth. I want us to wake up to spiritual growth. Let's look at this. John is writing to local churches. We've already said that he, he knows they believe the true gospel and that they're real Christians. And then he singles out... Three specific groups in these local churches. And you see him do that with the words children and the words young men and the words fathers. So he's writing the local churches, all of them. And then in these few verses, he singles out these three groups, children, young men and fathers. And what's happening here is he is describing the stages of of spiritual maturity 
the variety of spiritual maturity that is found in these local churches. So the children are the newborns in Christ. Okay, The young men are not infants in Christ anymore. They've grown f- further past that. And, and, and it's in the masculine, but it means young men and women. Okay, they're, they're, they're young people in Christ. They're not infants in Christ anymore. And then the word fathers, these describe the ones who have grown to maturity in Christ. Okay? And we're going to talk about that for a minute. Children, young men, and fathers. The fathers are the older believers in these congregations. The mature ones in Christ in the midst of these local churches. So let's spend a minute talking about spiritual maturity and these stages and how we should think about it. And why in the world is this showing up here? What are we supposed to get from this? So I want to give you three, three things to think about. The Bible teaches us. That we all come to Christ as infants. We come into this relationship with Jesus as babies. We have real genuine faith, but it's simple. We have much to learn. We are babies in Christ. God is, that's how He designed it. He set it up that way. He intends that we progress past that stage. That we grow in grace. That we come to a place of maturity in the Christian life. And the first thing I want to want to look at about maturity is that it's attainable. And, and I'm saying that for a reason, because a lot of times we, we magnify, like what Ryan said, maybe last week he said, you know, one of the most common things you hear is, we all sin, we all sin, we're all, you know, we all sin. And that's a half truth, because we do, we do, but a lot of people undercut truths of Scripture like this, of, oh, like when you think about mature and immature, I mean, we all sin, right? Is there, really, is there really such thing as an immature believer and a mature believer when we all sin? And the Bible says, yes, there is. The Bible says that this is an attainable thing in your life. It's not a myth. This is not a myth on something that you search for the entirety of your Christian walk. So let's hammer this down. It is not perfection. Uh, spiritual maturity is not perfection, but it is attainable. It is real. It is something that you are not only to strive for until you're a really old man or woman. It is something that you can have in reality in your life. Listen to Philippians chapter 3. I'm going to start reading in verse 12. And I want, to, I want you to pick up Paul's line of thought in chapter 3 of Philippians. Are you ready? Verse 12. He says this. Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own. So you see, he's not even perfect. He's pressing on. He's trying to make something his own. Verse 13, I do not consider that I have made it my own. Verse 14, but I press toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ. And so you stop there. You take away, well, we're, nobody's arrived. Nobody's there. And that's true. Nobody is perfect in Christ. But listen to what the very next verse says, verse 15. Let those of us who are mature think this way. Do you see what he said? We're not talking about sinless perfection. We're not talking about you arriving at perfection. We're talking about you standing in a place of spiritual maturity. It is attainable. It is a reality. It is not a myth. And then the second point right behind that is it's expected in your life. God expects every Christian to grow to maturity. Everyone. Listen to Hebrews 5. Starting in verse 11. About this we have much to say. And it is hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. 
For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. It is a sin for us to remain in this infant state. And God rebukes us for it. That there's a certain amount of time that passes for a believer and he has certain expectations for you. So he expects every Christian to grow into maturity, not to stay on milk your entire life, but to go to solid food, to go to a state of maturity. And these are true. But you know what? That's not what he's doing in these three verses. He is not looking at the babies and the young men and rebuking them for not being fathers. Okay? He's not doing that. This is, there's, there's no rebuke found in these verses. And so what is he doing? Okay? And here's what I think he's doing. He's calling their attention to these stages of spiritual maturity. And I want to remind you this morning that this is a process. That this is a process that God takes us through. He is celebrating the fact that there are children, young men, and fathers in every local church. That's healthy. It's always going to be like that. Okay? Any local church, true church that you look into... You're going to look out on those disciples of Jesus and there are going to be people in every one of those churches that are on those varying levels of spiritual maturity. Some are just coming to Christ. Some are growing a couple years in Christ. Some have been in Christ many, many years. Okay, This is always going to be true. This is God's design. God designed it like this, that there will be varying degrees of spiritual maturity. So, why does that matter to what he's trying to do in these local churches? And, and here's the comfort, the gospel comfort that I want you to think about. That God is, is intended to remind you today that you are a work in progress. Okay, If you were to read the book of 1 John in the ways that he's describing the Christian life, you could have some really wrong ideas that every Christian is supposed to be a cookie cutter. And it only looks one way. And true conversion is this and it never looks any different. Do you see that? And what he introduces here in the midst of these, in the midst of these examinations is he introduces this. That, that listen, people come to Christ and in every local church, they're at different places. You are in process. In this local church, in Christ, every Christian. Now, why is that a comfort? Why is that a comfort for any believer to remember that? Why is it a comfort for you to remember that you are a work in progress? He's calling their attention back to the finished work of Christ. We know that. We know that that's everything that's happening in this passage. And before this, he's examining, examining, examining. And so I, I, I want to just frame this up for you. Last week, Ryan talked about two things, right? When we're examining our lives, that we want to look in, look up. Okay? Remember that? Shake your head. Look in, look up. Another way to say that is the inward gaze and the Christward gaze. Okay? And here's the danger. In the middle of really strong warnings and, and encouraging people to look in, to gaze within, what can happen very quickly is if you stay there too long, things can get really, really unhealthy in your life. Very unhealthy. And one of the, the most common ways that that is processed is you're not obeying what God 
told you to do. You're looking for evidences of faith in your life. But one of the, one of the ways that this gets distorted is we look in. We do a gaze within, but we don't say, is there evidence of grace in my life? We say, how come I'm not like him? How come I'm not like her? How come this brother is so much more diligent than me? How come this sister is always A, B, C, D, E? And we begin to what? We begin to look in and we're not, we're not comparing ourselves to what God has told us to do. We're, we begin to compare ourselves with other people. With other people. Has this ever happened? And you know how common that is? Do you know how common that is? And so how encouraging is, is this breath of fresh air? Listen, God designed this thing that there would be varying levels of maturity in every single local church. Every single one. And so if you fix your eyes on other people, you're gonna, it's going to get nasty. Because you, that inward gaze, I say it like this. That's supposed to be a quick thing. You take a quick look within. Is there evidences of grace in my life? And then you look and you fix your gaze toward Christ. That's the only place faith will ever come. It's the only place faith will ever come. If you stay in too long. It's not an inward gaze. It's navel gazing. Am am I a Christian? Am I really saved? How come I'm not like so and so? And it's a dysfunction. It's not the way that God intended these tests to function in our life. So listen, if you just just throw this example up, if you are a less mature Christian in a local church and you are surrounded by other believers that are further along than you and more mature in Christ than you, how discouraged will you get if your eyes are consistently fixed on other people? You're going to feel like you perpetually do not measure up. Do you see that? So he introduces these categories of, listen, fix your eyes on Christ. God made you a child. God made you a young man. God made you a father. He's at work in this local church at varying degrees. People are coming to Christ all around us. We're at different places. And you have to learn to see yourself in a process. So the encouragement to you this morning is find yourself in one of these groups and turn to the heavens and praise God for what He's done in your life. By grace, you are a child in Christ. By grace, you are a young man in Christ. By grace, you are a father in Christ. This is His work. This is His work in your life. Be encouraged with that. And then, this is where it gets really good. Okay? is after he lays out that grid of there's different, there's different stages of maturity happening here, he begins to introduce gospel blessings to those stages, like forgiveness of sin, like the knowledge of God, like overcoming the evil one. And listen, every single thing he says to each of those groups is true of every Christian. And this is glorious. This, this is where it gets good. I want us to look at, at point number two. Wake up to the reality... Of the new covenant. And here's what I mean. The same things that the father, the fathers are given, the children have. The same things that the young men have, the children have. This, they're, they're the same blessings in Christ. We're at different levels of maturity, but we have the same spiritual riches. Wake up to the reality of the new covenant. So we're going to look at two of these spiritual blessings that he brings forward. And they're the forgiveness of sin and the knowledge of God. The forgiveness of sin and the knowledge of God. And I want you to notice that those are true. Those two things are true of every Christian, no matter where you fall 
in that, in, in, in that grid, right? Every Christian is forgiven of their sin, and every Christian knows God. And, and, and the way that that shows up it is in the Greek perfect tense. And what it means is you have been forgiven of your sin and you still are. It is a living, breathing reality in your life. It's not just some fact that you remember. It's a reality now that you tap into. Same thing with the knowledge of God. You have known God and you know God. You know the living God. Right now, in this moment, you know God. And this is what He's doing. He's bringing everybody into these gospel blessings. So let's look at these two. God's Word is shouting to you today. In Christ, every Christian in the room, that your sins... Have been forgiven. You have been forgiven of your sins. That is something that is not new to any Christian in the room. But this is glorious. This is a glorious gift of grace that God has done in our life. And when he addresses the children, he mentions both of these, right? To the children, their sins are forgiven for his name's sake. To the children, they know him who is from the beginning. The children, the youngest in the, in the church, they, their sins are forgiven and they know the living God. And so what he's doing with these two blessings is he's describing our initial experience in Christ. These are our first conscious experiences as Christians. Sin forgiven and now I know God. Sin forgiven and how I know God. This is exactly what happened in my life. I bear witness to this by experience. This is exactly what happened in my life. 2004, November, middle of the night, in my closet, face down before the Lord, put my trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. And what did He do? He did exactly what He promised He would do. He wiped away my sins, and I was immediately brought into a living relationship with the living God. I knew nothing of, of the rest of Scripture. It would be over years from that point before I knew about justification by faith, and adopted by God the Father, and delivered from, from Satan's kingdom. None of that. But in that moment, the first experiences, this is common to all of us. I knew that my sins were forgiven because of the blood of Jesus. And I knew that for the first time in my life, I knew the living God. Forgiveness of sin and the knowledge of God. Forgiveness of sin and the knowledge of God. This is our common experience as believers and what we mean by forgiveness of sin, and I'm going to say this over and over, this is not fact, I know my sins are forgiven. This is, I feel it in my bones, that that heavy weight of sin, that massive boulder that I carried my entire life of conviction of sin, of the record of my sin, has been lifted off of me in Jesus' name. This is the forgiveness of sin, not a fact, it's a glory. It is a glorious reality in your life, the forgiveness of of sin. This is the first word of the gospel. First thing that we're conscious of. Jesus, they said from the very beginning, Matthew 121, you're going to call his name Jesus because he's going to save his people from their sins. This is what he came to do and he did it in our life. Colossians 1:14 tells us that God took that sinful record, that criminal record, that rebellious record with its legal demands in your life. Christian, He took it, and what did He do? He nailed it to the cross. That sinful record was nailed to the cross in the body of Jesus Christ. And that tells us something about this forgiveness that we have, right? 
We're not forgiven because God is just like a really loving grandfather. And He just has vague, general goodwill towards all mankind. And He's so forgiving and He's so merciful. That's not why we're forgiven. We are forgiven because the Son of God was slaughtered in our place. He became the propitiation. He became the advocate. The one who pleads our case before the Father. We are forgiven through His blood. Ephesians 1.7 in Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace. Do you know any better news in all of God's creation that your personal, your personal sinful record, all of your perversions and rebellions that you have ever amassed before God, that nobody in this room would ever dream of knowing about you, has been washed away. You have been washed clean in the blood of Christ. Anybody got any better news than that? We have been forgiven of our sins. We have been forgiven of our sins. This is, the, this is a glorious gift of grace. And there's enough glory in that gift of the gospel to, to magnify the grace of God through eternal ages. He will be magnified throughout eternity for that, for what He's done with our sins. He has saved us from our sins. I want to give you just a... This is a thought. A couple of years ago, I, I still do not know where this came from, but I, I, it was some Puritan journal that I was reading. Okay, And I was reading a biography... And I think it was John Bunyan. It might have been somebody else. In the middle of him describing a normal daily thing in his life, in the middle of one of his journal entries, he, 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 he makes this statement that he's in the middle of normal everyday life. And then he says that, that in this normal everyday, that he was walking somewhere down the road and he was so overcome by the things of Jesus that he turns aside on that road and he says, he sought a quiet place, and he says, for several minutes, he contemplated the joy of sin forgiven. He contemplated the joy of sin forgiven. People don't talk like that anymore. I want you to, to think about that. That's Monday morning, Wednesday morning, on your way to work, that you are so overcome with what God has done in your life, that you pull over on the side of the interstate. And you what? You contemplate the joy of sin forgiven. You check out of this world for a moment. And you roll through these eternal things in your mind. That's, that's what we're talking about. We're not talking about facts. We're talking about a glorious gift of grace. Of sin forgiven. Sin forgiven. What does it look like when you, when you lay hold of these things? Well, here's what it's looked like in church history. People sing about this. Listen to these words. My sin, oh the bliss... Of this glorious thought. My sin not in part but the whole. Is nailed to the cross. And I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Oh my soul. Amen. I want us to sing something together. Okay. Y'all ready? This is behold the man upon the cross. Behold the man upon his cross, my sin upon his shoulders, ashamed I hear my mocking voice call out among the scoffers, it was my 
sin that held him there until it was accomplished. His dying breath has brought me life. I know that it is finished. Hallelujah to the name of Christ. Romans chapter 4 verse 7 says blessed, literally happy. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Blessed are you today if your sins have been forgiven. We sang this earlier. Hallelujah, all I have is Christ. Everything in this world can be going wrong for you. And if your sins are forgiven, you are eternally blessed. Your sins are forgiven. Happy are you. Blessed are you. And the text says that God did this for His namesake. God forgave us of our sins for His namesake. And that reminds us that something's at play more than just me and God. God is doing something bigger than just what He did in my life. Listen to these verses. Psalm 106, verse 8. Yet He saved them for His namesake, that He might make known His mighty power. Isaiah 43, verse 25. I, I am He who blots out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. Isaiah 48 verse 9, For my own name's sake I defer my anger. For the sake of my praise I restrain it from you, that I may not cut you off. This is the reminder this morning. You are a Christian. Your sins are forgiven. Not because you are awesome. Not because you are awesome. Not because any merit in you. You are a Christian because the eternal sovereign God designed to magnify His holy name in your life. He decided in eternity past to make you a trophy of grace, a manifestation of His power to wash away human sin. You are caught up in this story. You are caught up in the story of the ages. You are forgiven of your sins for His namesake. For His namesake. Ephesians chapter 1 tells us that because of that, forever throughout eternity... There will be this banner over us that we are unto the praise of the glory of His grace. That means forever, forever you will stand before God and you will say, God, Your grace is glorious. It is beautiful. It is magnificent of what You've done for us in Jesus. Can't get over it, Lord. Unsearchable riches. Praise to Your name. For His namesake, He did this. He decided to make Himself known through all of His creation as God the Savior. He could have magnified Himself in your life as God the righteous judge and poured out wrath on you for millions of ages. He could have did that. But in His sovereign mercy, He decided to magnify Himself in your life as God the Savior. God the merciful one that washes away our sin. He did this for His namesake. For His namesake. And so brothers and sisters. I'm reminding you today. That your sins have been forgiven. They are nailed to the tree. And you bear them no more. And we say praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Oh my soul. Praise His holy name. For taking away our sin.
Not only did He forgive us of our sin, we also know God. He gave us a knowledge of God. See this in the phrase, you know Him who is from the beginning? And He says it again later in the same paragraph. He says, you know the Father. You know the Father. When we say you know God, we don't mean you know things about God. Muslims can know things about God. We don't mean knowing facts about God. We mean being brought into a personal relationship with the living God. And I'm reminding you today, every Christian without exception, you have been brought into a personal relationship with the living, eternal God. The one from eternity that never has a beginning and never has an end. You know Him. You know Him because of what Jesus has done in your life. You know the one for whom you were created. Every part about you is designed to magnify Him and to glorify Him. And you know Him now. You know Him. You know the one for whom the entire universe exists. There's not a star in the solar system, not a molecule in all of the universe that doesn't exist for this God. And you know that God. You know that God, every Christian. And you can open your mouth from the moment of conversion. You can open your mouth and you can call this exalted King of glory. Angels hide their faces from Him. And you know what we say in Christ? We say Father in Heaven. We know Him as the Father. From the moment that we are in Christ, every single Christian. I want you to imagine, can you even begin to dream of receiving a greater blessing than the unsearchable God. The God who has no beginning and the God who has no end. And you have Him. In Christ, you get God. You know God. 1 John chapter 3, verse 1. See what kind of love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God? This is God's love lavished in, on, on you. Same truth, Right? You're, you know God. You're a child of God. That's not just a fact about you. It is a fact, but it's not just a fact to be remembered. It's, it's something to be reveled in, to be gloried in. We know God. We know God. Every Christian experiences this from the moment of conversion. You ever thought about that? Baby's first words almost every single time in this world are mama, daddy. And that is the exact same thing that God does in our heart through the work of the Holy Spirit. From the moment of conversion, we begin to call Abba, Father. Listen to Romans 8, verse 15. You have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. Galatians chapter 4, verse 6. And because you are sons, God sent the spirit of His Son into our hearts crying, Abba, Father. This is, this is a common experience for every Christian. You didn't even have to know about it. It just happened in your life. That you know the living God. You know Him. The one from eternity. You know Him. And so here we go. Forgiveness of sin and the knowledge of God. Forgiveness of sin and the knowledge of God. That's the initial Christian experience. Sin washed away. And we're brought into a personal relationship with God. And what do you know? This is exactly how the gospel is preached in the book of Acts. When the apostles look out at unbelieving humanity, they make an offer to them on the basis of the finished work of Christ. You know what they offer them? Forgiveness of sin and a personal relationship with God. Look at it. Acts chapter 2, 
Verse 38. And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ. Listen. For the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. You believe this gospel? Sins washed away and you get the living God. Man, what an offer. This is the grace of God. Sins washed away and you get God. Acts chapter 3, verse 19 and 20. We see it again. Repent, therefore, and turn back, that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. You get your sins forgiven and you get God from the moment you believe. Moment you believe. Can you imagine offering somebody a higher gift than that? We have good news. That's what the word gospel means. We have good news. We have a message that somebody's sins can be forgiven and that these little rebellious creatures can know the living God. This is our gospel based on the finished work of Christ. And this is how the Christian life has always started. It's always started like this. And if you notice carefully, forgiveness of sin and the knowledge of God, this is also a description of the new covenant. The new covenant. When Jeremiah, the prophet, when he prophesies about a day when God would inaugurate a new covenant for his people, I want you to listen to how he describes this. Jeremiah chapter 31 verse 34. Listen close. And no longer... Shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord. For they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. Brothers and sisters, I want you to see this. He is calling their attention to the new covenant in these verses. What is he saying? He's saying from the least of them to the greatest, from the smallest of children to the oldest disciple of Jesus. You all know God, every one of you, from the least to the greatest. Nobody's left out. These riches are poured out on all, on all. And he will remember their sins no more. Every Christian knows God. Every Christian, your sins have been forgiven. This is the glorious new covenant. This is why he's grabbing this language and what that means if he's describing the new covenant then we get everything else that falls into this new covenant every christian has received the new covenant listen to how the prophet joel describes this what god's going to do when he inaugurates this new covenant joel chapter 2 verse 28 and 29 listen close and it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. On all flesh. Every Christian's getting the spirit. And then listen to what he says. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams. And your young men shall see visions. Even on the male and female servants in those days. I will pour out my spirit. Do you see what he's doing? Every Christian gets God. Nobody has more of God than, than any other Christian in the room. He poured out the Spirit on all flesh, old men and children. Everybody gets God. This is the new covenant. And the riches of this covenant are poured out on all. 
There's not a Christian in this room that needs a priest anymore. We are all priests in Christ. Every Christian in the room. You have direct access to God through what Jesus has done for you. That's what he means when he says nobody's going to need to teach you to know the Lord. That doesn't mean that we don't need teaching like this. That means there's nobody standing between you and the living God. No more mediators. No more earthly mediators. Everybody's got the Spirit. Everybody's got direct access to God the Father. This is the new covenant. And I want you to wake up and smell the glory of it. Smell the glory of this new covenant. What if you could remember that tomorrow morning when you wake up? Dustin, smell the glory of the new covenant. All the spiritual riches in Christ are yours today. You woke up and you're still a Christian. Still in that eternal covenant. All the promises that God made are still true of you today. Think that day would be filled up with worship and praise to our God. Wake up to the glory of the new covenant. From the least to the greatest, the riches of Christ have been poured out on every Christian. Last point, point number three, we'll leave you with this. Wake up to victory and spiritual warfare. When he addresses the young man, we are told that they have overcome the evil one. They have overcome the evil one. And he says they are strong. And he says, and the word of God abides in you. So here's what we're going to push into. The Bible teaches that there is an objective victory available for every Christian over Satan. Okay? Every single Christian. There is a victory available for you over Satan. When he says that they overcame the evil one, that's another perfect tense verb, right? That means that this is, a, this is connected to the finished work of Christ and they're experiencing it in the present. And that's true for every one of you. This is available to you. If somebody's never told you this before, I want you to pay attention. You are not under Satan's dominion. He has no authority in your life. His dominion has been broken through the work of Christ. You have an objective victory over Satan. Listen to this. 1 John chapter 3, verse 8 tells us that Jesus came into the world to destroy the work of the devil. So He's here. He came. And what did He come to do? He came to destroy Satan's work. Ryan read the verse where He did it. He didn't just come with a good plan. He did it. Hebrews 2.14 He destroyed the one who had power of death. That is the devil. Through death He did it. He did it at the cross. That's how He struck the victory blow to the evil one. Is he, 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 he did it at the cross. So at the cross of Jesus, Jesus conquers Satan. That's what that verse teaches. Now here's something that you need to know. He shares that victory with us. Every follower of Christ, every Christian, He shares this with us. This is like the spoils of war for the Son of God. He distributes, distributes this victory by grace alone. You didn't merit this. This is a gospel gift in your life. Gospel gift in your life. You need to know that Jesus Christ has disarmed your, your strongest enemy. You need to know that. Jesus shares this victory with every Christian and the victory begins at conversion. Listen to how your conversion is described in Acts 26 verse 18. It says that the moment you got saved, you were turned from the power of Satan to the power of God. I wonder who did that. Not you. Not you. The strong arm of God turned you away from the power of Satan to the power of God. Colossians 1 verse 13 
He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of the Son that He loves. God did that in your life. You are ripped out of Satan's dominion. He no longer has authority in your life. His dominion has been broken. You have been delivered, past tense, from the dominion of darkness. It is done. It is a finished objective work in your life. Colossians 2 verse 15. It describes Satan's tyranny broken like this. It says that he disarmed the rulers and the authorities and put them to an open shame by triumphing over them in him. Do you know that? Okay. Satan is real. Satan has undescribable power in, in a lot of ways. Okay, But he is a disarmed enemy for the people of God. You didn't disarm him. Jesus did on his cross. His tyranny is broken in your life. Okay? So let's talk about this. That objective victory that, you, that is available to you, every Christian doesn't walk in that every day of their life. Okay? So the question is this. How do you, how do you apply the finished work of Christ? How do you apply it? How do you take this objective truth and you make it part of your subjective daily experience with the Lord? How do you do this? And the answer is you have to become strong. That's what he says. You've overcame the evil one and you are strong. You have to become strong. Listen to how he describes it here. Ephesians chapter 6 verse 10 says, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Put on the full armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. So this is how you do it. This is how the objective becomes your daily experience. You have to be made strong. There is a sense that God commands you to be strong in the Lord. There is a sense that it is a disobedience for us as Christians to be weak. We are to be strong in the Lord in the strength of His might. This doesn't downplay the reality of spiritual warfare, okay? There is an enemy of your soul that is ready to pounce on you. Listen to 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8. It says, Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Man, what if we... Just imagine that. That you have an adversary that he doesn't want to trip you. That's not the language that's used there. He is portrayed as he wants to eat you. He wants to devour you. He wants to steal everything that God is doing in your life. He hates you. He hates everybody that belongs to Christ. And he's powerful. And so what are we supposed to do in Christ? What are we supposed to do with the devouring lion that's prowling around that wants to eat us? Man, man, you might be surprised at this. It doesn't tell us to run from him. It doesn't tell us to flee from Satan. It doesn't tell us to pretend that he doesn't exist and tell ourselves little, little cliches and, 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 and weird things. What does it tell us to do with the devouring line? Very next verse. Resist him firm in the faith. That sounds like strength in spiritual battle. You need to be strong in the Lord. And the strength of His might. 
You need to draw some spiritual strength. You need to draw this from the finished work of Christ. And we are commanded. We have to firmly resist the devil. Firmly resist him. This is how that objective gift that every Christian receives becomes your daily experience. Daily experience. And the question is, how can I do that? How can I get strong? Not push-ups, right? Not squat rack. That's, that's a, a shot at biblical masculinity, right? Being a man of God is not about crossfit or squat racks or doing all kind of you know, woodsy things. Being a man of God is about being strong. And how do you get strong? How do you get strong? And our passage says through that living, through that abiding word of God. That's how you got made strong. You got strong in the spiritual battle through the abiding word of God. Man, I want this to be a reminder to us today that you have been given riches in Christ and you will not walk in them until this connection happens in your life. That all these riches become your daily experience through you feasting on the word of God. They were made strong through scripture. That's the only way disciples of Jesus have ever been made strong. So, so here's the wake up call. There's a battle raging in your life that you are not strong enough to fight without Scripture, without the Word of God. You need the abiding Word of God. You need it. Satan's main strategy from Genesis chapter 3 has always been lies. And the people of God's main weapon from, from that point forward has always been God's Word of truth. Ephesians 6 calls it the sword of the Spirit. And verse 17 tells us, take that thing up. Don't leave that thing sitting on the dresser. Don't leave that thing in the back of your mind. Take that sword up. Pick it up. So this is the encouragement. We have to lean in and devour the Scriptures so that what Jesus has done becomes our daily experience. There is no such thing as a strong Christian who is weak in Scripture. You will deceive yourself until they put you in the grave, until you come square face to face with that. It is an oxymoron. A church that does not have access to the Bible is a weak church. It's not a strong church, it's a weak church. And a Christian that doesn't feast on God's Word is a weak Christian. But God wants you strong. Be strong in the Lord. Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His mind. And I got some good news for you. Every Christian in the room... We, we know what it's like to be less diligent than we should be. Okay? We know what that's like if we, were, if we were honest with ourselves. But I want to encourage every one of you that in this area of the Word of God, God has done something in your life in this area. And it is something powerful. Powerful. So I want us to take us back to the New Covenant in Jeremiah 31. About that abiding Word of God. Let's see what he says. Jeremiah 31 verse 33. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and write it on their hearts. Do you know that? Christian, brothers and sisters, the living God has carved His Word into your soul. He has done this for every single Christian. And you need to believe that. Reading the Bible is not unnatural for you. It, it is part of your new nature. It is carved on your insides. 
This is part of the new covenant that is in you. It's in you. It wasn't before, now it is. Now it is. This is what we're supposed to be doing in the language of James chapter 1, verse 21. It says, receive with meekness the implanted word. Think about that. that. That's how your relationship with the Bible is supposed to be. Receive with meekness the implanted word. That you grab a hold of what you already have in Christ. Grab a hold of what you already have been given in Jesus. So here we are. Brothers and sisters, we are recipients of the new covenant. And I'm calling us to wake up today. God's word is carved on your heart. Your strongest enemy has been disarmed. You have received the, the eternal covenant of God. God has washed away our sins. And we know the living God. And more than any other people on planet earth, God deserves to be praised and magnified throughout eternity for this glorious gospel that He's delivered to us. We don't want to be princes on the ground walking around like slaves. We are rich in Christ. We are rich in Christ. I'll close our time with a call to worship. Psalm 148, verse 12 and 13. Young men and maidens together, old men and children, let them praise the name of the Lord, for His name alone is exalted. His majesty is above earth and heaven. Let's pray. Lord, we love You. And we, God, we are unto the glory, unto the praise of the glory of Your grace. God, thank You for calling us into this plan of the ages, Lord. Your, your plan of salvation. Your, your determination from eternity to magnify Your great name. Lord, be exalted in this place. Remind us of the glory of Your gospel. We pray that You would stand by Your word today and that You would cause it to bring comfort to Your church. In Jesus' name. Amen.